Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 31. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by the doc, our friend, Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hey, Joe. Uh, how are you doing, sir? In the past week, we, um, we discussed origins of life, and it's just really awesome to hear that in the past week, some interesting things have happened that concerned the origins of life in the news. So we're going to talk about that, and uh, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, we are going to talk about that, because I can't think of anything else at the moment. So this is what we're going to be talking about. But before that, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Excellent. Working hard, um, trying to get a COVID-19 paper published. We shall see if I can get it published or not, but I... I think I've come up with some really cool information that other people don't know, which is the whole goal of publishing. Oh, so yeah. now it's floating it out there and see if anyone will take a bite, take the bait. Ah, okay. That's keeping you busy most of the time when you're not oh, working man. on your video production. Yeah, super busy. And nice. Video production is going well. I did a, um, I did actually an origin of life biblical genetics episode because it, this new stuff that came out that we'll be talking about later, but that was my longest one I've done so far, which means it's harder to edit because there's more stuff to edit. Oh, wow. But it's also probably the most superior quality video I've done yet. I'm really happy with it. It looks good. Excellent. It sounds good. I was, I was actually smiling. I have the hardest time smiling <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm doing my own videos. And so I have a cover image with me smiling. It's like, wow, look at that the first time. It takes a little experience to use facial expression at all. I remember some of the masters, you know, looking through pictures of actors who are really good at that sort of thing. There was this great example that got circulated a while ago where Harrison Ford was just looking into the camera for a still photo. And one side of his face was very different from the other. And so somebody casually observing the photo realized what he had done and they took the picture and then blacked out one side of his face and one side of the photo to just show the left side of his face. And on that side, he was frowning and he, he looked really <laughs> just down in the dumps and maybe a little upset at you, <laughs> the photographer. But then if you blacked out the other side, he was like beaming and he was smiling and it was bright. Like he was really happy and look, looking at the camera. I, I don't understand how he had that much control. I can imagine Harrison Ford doing that. I don't know why, but um, it sounds like something he would do. <laughs> Some of those actors got skills, but even regular people, the YouTubers, it's, uh, it's something to learn that you got to look at that camera that isn't giving you anything back and act like a human being talking to other human beings on the other side of the lens. It's not easy. No, I imagine you'd look rather wry if you were smiling on one side and frowning on the other. Oh, but that's you know, one of sort the of like, best expressions. Sort of like life stinks, but I'm going to make the best of it or I'm going to laugh my way through it or something like that. I, I can imagine a lot of emotion coming through a face like that. It, it is one of God's many gifts. I love a good facial expression. You've got all the hand gestures and the voice inflection. <laughs> I thought you had it all figured out. <laughs> Not the facial expressions. <laughs> now, your latest video took you over here to my neck of the woods. You were filming in one of the, isn't it a state park, Pickett's Mill? It's uh, the state historic site, Pickett's Mill Battlefield. Okay. That place is really nice. 
It, it, it is, but as far as a battlefield go, there's nothing there. No. I mean, there's no, a small not. museum, but there's no cannons and there's no field. It's all woods because it's all grown up since the battle 150-something more years ago. True. I hadn't thought about how much it must have overgrown since then. Hmm. But the one downside about that park you got to be careful of is that um, my family and I, we went over there a handful of times this year because it was a nice secluded spot with practically no visitors when we went. And each time we got poison ivy. So, oh, yeah. Wow. Do you I would worry more about chiggers because I know what poison ivy looks like. I can avoid that. The chiggers are sneaky. They could catch you. Oof. Yeah, beware. Then lately, I was going to tell you, Rob, I'm pretty excited about this news. It, it, you know, I was working on that podcast for last week that was really tough to it, not exactly impersonate, but represent, you know, in various voices, different characters like Charles Darwin, but also other yeah. authors and women and stuff in that one episode. Yeah. This is for that the creation was, talk? Yeah. Well, creation article podcast, which goes on YouTube okay. and it goes out to Spotify and Apple podcasts like this podcast does. And it's gotten a good reception. Uh, and it was tough. The final cut was over 32 minutes long. And I used music, and that has really made it easier to listen to a long delivery. Are you using music in your biblical genetics videos from top to bottom? I was wondering if you did. I'm not. And it's because even though music to me is very important, like if you're watching a movie and you don't notice the music and it's an awesome movie, it's probably because the music is awesome and it did such a great, great job integrating it that it's, um, it's just part of the experience. Yeah. And I'm not that good and it would bug me it's if I not had bad easy. music. No. Mm. And because I don't hear very well, I wouldn't know how to balance the music. Gotcha. I wouldn't know how to adjust it so that you know, normal hearing people can hear me talking with just a gentle musical background. So... I just don't do it at all. I don't dare. There are some difference of opinions on what the ideal ratio for decibel differences between music and sound effects and vocal parts can be. It's tricky, but yeah. I really enjoy finessing those things. And I feel like it's gotten much better. That you've gotten much better? Yeah. Just oh, good. Maybe some experience. Maybe uh, season two, Biblical Genetics, I'll start with uh, some background music. Oh, cool. Yeah, I can point you to some good sources, too, for the music. Okay, cool. I, I'm pretty excited, though. We did top 13,000 subscribers to the YouTube channel that I'm responsible for, the content I produces for this channel, for cool. creation.com and Creation Ministries International worldwide. Awesome, so good for you. I'm celebrating. I enjoy these milestones, reaching another 1,000. And if you're at all interested in anything that we talk about on Equinox and you're familiar with this podcast, but somehow you're not familiar with creation.com, which we don't talk about very often, but it does come up. We have some links in the show notes sometimes to creation articles, and those are often from things that Rob has written for that website or his peers have written for that website. We'll go ahead and just put a, a link to the article podcast in there so that you could have that. And you pr if you like this show, you'll probably enjoy the talk show we do for Creation Talk on YouTube as well which is also available as a talk show podcast audio only. So I'll add that to the show notes as well. Now, in the past week, let's go, well, let me go ahead and say, now's a good time to ring the chime because we are going to get into the main topic now. Ring. 
In the past week, you did another biblical creation or a biblical genetics video where you talked about the origin of life, right? Oh, yeah. But see, the thing, that wasn't uh, uh, planned, was it? Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. Something happened after we recorded our last episode. Very interesting and unexpected stuff. How did you come across it? What was this story? Um, honestly, I don't even know how I came across it. I consume a lot of scientific information, videos and articles, and it could have come across any, any news feed or any social media or someone could email that. Actually, no, I think, I think one of a CMI speaker in Australia emailed it around to all the CMI speakers. Mm. And even though I'm not a chemist, I said, this is amazing. And so I started digging into it. And as I dug into it, I said, I got to talk about this. And so I, I did a nearly half an hour explanation of the origin of life chemistry that has now been revealed by this new study. My, my mind is still spinning. It was so cool. So is this a groundbreaking study that uh, the word is getting out to the general public? Or is this something that usually would more or less interest these scientific peers? No, they're trying hard to do uh, media outreach with this. Um, the American Academy of the Advancement of Science, the AAAS, they did a a video, an explanatory video, where one of the authors is going through the software and pointing out all the cool stuff it can do. And there's been, um, you know, fizz.org did a uh, spread on it, and there's been a couple of popular level explanations of what's going on. So they're trying. I don't think it's going to be some massive, gigantic, you know, we just discovered King Kong on a remote island sort of a thing. And one of the reasons for that is probably because the news reports aren't anything new. It's same old, same old. We showed that the origin of life is possible. One more step toward a you know reasonable idea of where life came from and stuff like that. So it's not hmm. it's not super exciting from that perspective because it's been done so many times before for the last 50, 70 years or something like that. All right. Well, then what was the research? What did they attempt? Well, what they did was really interesting. They went through or, or they wrote a, a program that could take a scientific paper and pull out the information in the scientific paper and store it on a computer. And they wrote um, some software that could take all that stuff and interpret it as chemical formula, formulae, whatever, chemical formulas. They told the software, okay, software, here's all this metadata from all these papers. Tell me what will happen if I mix this and this. And the, and the computer will like, do, 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 and it'll say, you'll get this reaction and you'll get this product and it has to be under these conditions. And here are all the scientific papers to explain how to do it. And so they're actually able to say, I want to get this product here, and no one's ever made that before. How would I make it? And the computer would literally pull all this vast information together and plot out a course to do this, do this, do this. There's the thing that you're looking for. And it's like any human being could have figured this out, but only one thing at a time. No human being can keep all this information in their head all at once. It's impossible. And what happens is chemists tend to specialize. Oh, I'm working on boron only and boron mixing with magnesium only and, you know, at high temperatures. And this other guy is doing something completely different. And so everyone compartmentalizes, but this is a very general approach. And so they turned it on the origin of life scenario. You know, the, um, the Miller-Urey experiment. We, uh, we highlighted that in Evolution's Achilles heels. The spark chamber thing where you have a, some bubbling chemicals and it goes up and goes through a spark and then they condense it down and then they collect over, after many generations of bubbling and sparking and bubbling and sparking and bubbling and sparking. They collect the material that was made 
And this, and generally the, the announcement is, oh, we have found the building blocks of life. The origin of life and chemicals is certainly possible. It's only a matter of time before we figure it out. You've heard of that, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, they just did it digitally. They said, let's start with ammonia, methane, water, uh, cyanide, um, nitrogen. And let's just say, okay, what will we do if we take these six things and we rack them randomly together? What do we get? You get maybe 10 or 12 things. Okay, mm. now let's take these 10 or 12 things plus the six original things and rack them all together. What can we get? And you get maybe 50 things. And by the time you get to the fifth level of reaction, you've got, oh, about 1,500 different possible chemicals. Huh. It's, wow. it's really interesting. But then they give away the game accidentally. They're talking about, okay, the chemicals that are actually used in biological things, they've highlighted in a color. And I'm looking at this thing, I'm saying there's 11 colored dots and 1,500 non-colored dots. So less than 1% of all the chemicals produced at random are used in biology. Can you think huh. of a problem that that might represent? <laughs> well, those are the chemicals that are meant to give us the origin of life. But they're rare. They're hard to get. Yes, you can produce them, but 99 or more percent of all the chemicals are the things you don't want. If there's a strong bias towards producing the 20 amino acids that are used in living things, or a strong bias towards producing adenine, guanine, cytosine, thymine, and uracil, then you maybe you could get RNA and DNA. But there's not a strong bias. It's extremely rare. Well, the other thing about rare is that it's almost like as big as the world planet Earth is, it feels like there's no scarcity to these chemicals. But we're talking about the cosmos in terms of scales for rarity, right? We're talking about the size of the Earth and oceans on Earth and things being diluted. Meanwhile, you're, if you want something to proceed for the origin of life, you have to have a high concentration of a specific, uh, specific substrate. I'm, I'm searching for words here. I'm, I'm garbling all my science words. It's bad. You need a whole bunch of something to react together to make the next something. So we're not even talking about the scarcity on the scale of the universe. We're talking about something that we would take for granted as seeming to be common on planet Earth still being rare. If this is, if planet Earth, Earth represents 100% of all the chemicals you had to choose from, even here, it's rare, a very small percentage. Hey, Joe, I'm not sure we're talking about the same thing. I, I got I to understand what you're talking about so I can answer it. And then you can ask me the question again. What do you mean? the chemical ingredients that you're getting to that are responsible for creating life. Well, there should be a lot of the basic building blocks on some primordial earth just by default. Remember, you're talking about the universe is what I don't understand. Why are you talking about the cosmos? Well, the reason I brought it up is I'm just saying to contrast it, everybody would say that the ingredients for potential life anywhere in the cosmos are rare or unrare and what we could say is well they're actually pretty rare you know there's not that many inhabitable planets and you know a planet like venus is uninhabitable it's not got good conditions it's not got good chemicals so it, you know as big as the universe is it's actually shocking just how how rare it's insanely rare and small percentage point that anything in the life could uh anything in the universe could create or sustain life so then you just look at the scale of planet Earth and you think, well, we've narrowed it down. It's not, it can't be remotely as difficult to create life conditions here or to produce life here because obviously we've got life and we've got ways to sustain it. So 
it's easy to take for granted that the conditions, the chemicals that would be necessary to have the origin of life would be essentially in some kind of abundance in earlier Earth, you know, history. Let's that, that's an excellent of millions point. of years. Like, but but what you're saying is that it is even still rare, even on a planet that sustains life. Wow. All right, so the universe is mostly hydrogen. After that, helium. There's a few heavier elements. Planets are rare. Planets like Earth are rare. And so you have to have all these fantastically remote possibilities come together. And then you need an Earth that has a high abundance of these six starting compounds, which is a giant assumption. And even after all that, you start making random chemicals. And most of the chemicals that you want are really hard to find. Cool. Wow. Yeah. But the next thought is even worse. Besides the fact that the chemicals that you need for life to start are, are few and far between compared to all the other chemicals that can be made, most of the other chemicals, or a lot of them anyway, are poisons. There's a lot of these small chemicals that if we ingest them, we would die. Carbon monoxide, cyanide, these things are actually biocides. Worse than that, a lot of these products or these, these chemicals that are, would be made in this sort of a origin of life scenario are cross-reactive. Some of these things are very reactive and these molecules are going to be destroying each other. So if you want, let's say, um, a uracil because you want the RNA world to work and you need a lot of RNA, so you're going to try to make uracil, that uracil is going to be being destroyed by all these other things. How are you going to get uracil? It's going to be hit by oxygen or water or you know, some, something with a double bonded oxygen on it that's going to just rip apart all the electrons on the uracil and all of a sudden you don't have it anymore. And that's what this study is telling us. The origin of life actually is much more complicated than anyone wanted to admit. And I, they didn't even admit it in their, in their paper, but it's clear from what they're saying. Wow. We're just saying that this is not a, a bet you would bet on. <laughs> if, no if way. You could, if you could make any kind of money, you'd not bet on this one. You remember the photosynthesis discussion? Yeah. You remember we talked about a cycle where carbon dioxide mm. comes in, it joins to one chemical, that chemical gets, does something else, does something else, and that, and then it splits and it makes two of the same original chemical. Remember that? It's called yeah. the Calvin cycle. The cycle is at the foundation of life. Without the Calvin cycle, there'd be no animals. There'd be no plants. There'd be, you know, a few things maybe on a hot smoker in the deep ocean, but that's not enough productivity to feed everything else on the earth. We need this Calvin cycle to power things. It's a cyclical reaction. There's another cyclical reaction that happens in plants and animals. It's called the Krebs cycle. This is where we take sugar and rip it apart and it kicks out carbon dioxide, which is why we breathe out carbon dioxide. But it's a cyclical reaction. It starts in with one chemical. It does things, does things, does things, does things. And you get the same chemical back again. Meanwhile, a carbon dioxide has been ripped off. It's just very strange cyclical chemistry is actually at the foundation of all living things. So guess what this study did? They looked for cyclical chemistry and they found dozens of cycles and so the assumption here is since life depends upon cyclical reactions if we can find that cyclical reactions are common in this primordial earth thing then obviously it's not that hard to get photosynthesis or the krebs cycle see yeah so one of the things that they're doing here in this video is they're talking about this cycle and they flash it up on the screen an example and so I grabbed a screenshot of that and I, I went through it. I'm looking at it and I'm saying, wow, this is crazy. They have a three-step system where they start with a chemical, 
react it, react it, react it. And that last reaction, this big chemical breaks in half and you get two of your original chemicals. So you start with a chemical, you add something to it, you add something to it, and then you split it in half and now you have two again. Uh -huh. Okay, that's interesting. But I'm looking at the reaction conditions. The first one needs a borate buffer at pH 10.2 and zero degrees Celsius. So you need ice water and a high boron concentration and a high pH. And that pH, you could clean your dishes with this pH. This is like not a normal thing. I would never expect a place on this primordial earth to be packed with boron or borate even, which is boron plus oxygen and freezing cold. Hmm. And then the next one, it requires a pH of six. Now we're not in a basic solution anymore. Now we're in an acidic solution and you need cyanide and formaldehyde. And then the next reaction, you need 1.7 molar sodium hydroxide, which is about as basic as you can get. It's almost pH 14. I mean, if you put your hand in there, it would strip the skin off your bones. That's how, how basic this would be. Wow. Where in the primordial earth are you going to get something like this? Oh, huh. These are extremely specific reaction conditions. And if you deviate a little bit, you're not going to get the product that you want. And so what it's telling us is that in order for this cycle to work, you need an organic chemistry laboratory. You need a factory. You need PhD chemists and Nobel Prize winners to figure out how these things work. It's never going to work by itself in nature. I mean, what's the probability that there's a, a freezing cold borate volcano and there's a, a, a river flowing down into an acidic pool with cyanide and formaldehyde, and then that flows into a sodium hydroxide cauldron that bubbles and bubbles and bubbles, and now you have your, your three-way system. You can have a cycle. And I am certain that if we looked at all the dozens of cycles that they showed, that this would be the rule. That in order to go from step one to step two to step three to step four, how many steps there might be, you have to completely change your reaction conditions. And every time you have to do that, it makes the origin of, of this chemical in a primordial soup that much less likely and becomes pretty much impossible pretty quickly. Wow. Interesting stuff. In summary, then how would you explain the relevance from the secular point of view and your point of view? That it's possible to use simple things as building blocks for more complicated things. That's fine. But as far as the origin of life goes, what they've shown is that the reaction conditions necessary to produce what is required by life are completely improbable. And the things required by life are going to be rare. And the things required by life are going to be continually destroyed by the other things being produced. There's actually nothing here to suggest that the origin of life is possible. And we can see it because they just did this giant meta-analysis of the origin of life chemistry. That's just unbelievably cool. And it's like they shot themselves in the foot and I don't think they realize it. At least the, the media reporting certainly doesn't realize it. That is so funny. Hmm. Wonder when they're going to spot it. There are two giant problems with all, or three actually. There's a polymerization problem. There's a side chemistry problem. And then there's the information problem. And all these are insurmountable. Life uses really long molecules. DNA, RNA, proteins, polysaccharides, or carbohydrates if you like. Long chains of sugars. These things are really long molecules. And the subunits for you know, DNA and RNA, they're nucleotides. For proteins, it's amino acids. And for polysaccharides, it's sugar. The subunits are linked together by pulling an H off of one side and an OH off of the other side. That makes a water. And then the two units will join together. 
So as you're making DNA, RNA, protein, and polysaccharides, you're actually generating a lot of water. The problem is most chemical reactions are reversible. And in this case, water sticks itself in, into this bond and breaks it faster than these things happen naturally. So if you put spaghetti in water and let it sit there, it's going to break down into the component sugars. You're not going to have spaghetti after a month. If you put DNA in solution, it breaks down into nucleotides. If you put proteins into water, it, they break down into amino acids. If you put amino acids in a pot and let it sit for a million years, it's never going to form a protein. And so the polymerization problem is a massive problem for the origin of life, and all origin of life scenarios have to have water in them. But the water is a poison. Mm. You can't get polymers. And any organic chemist would know that. Say, oh, I want to polymerize something. I'm going to pull all the water out first because the water yeah. will push the reaction in the wrong direction. The second big problem is a side chain problem. A lot of organic molecules can do a lot of different chemical reactions. Sure, you can get nucleotides to stick together in a chain, but there's other places on that nucleotide where another chemical can react with it. There's oxygens and nitrogens and carbons, and you can rip off hydrogens. And, and so instead of getting a line, if you just did this stuff randomly, you would get a mesh. You would get something we would call tar. Tar. It's kind of like random carbons. Huh. You would not get a beautiful chain of you know, nucleotides and say, oh, I now have DNA. You're going to have amino acids sticking to it. You're going to have sugar sticking to it. You're going to have formaldehyde getting in there. You're going to have water breaking it apart. You can't do it. Until you have living things, you don't get living things like molecules. It takes life to make long chain molecules. Random chemistry never gives it to us. So problem number one, polymerization. Problem number two, side chains. And problem number three is the information content. I mean, John Sanford in um, Evolution's Achilles Heels, he said it the best. He said, basically, it doesn't matter. Even if the original life can produce all the chemicals that life requires, you've gotten nowhere. Even if you had DNA and proteins and cell membranes and throw some ATP in there if you like, have everything that life requires, you have actually nothing because life requires an instruction set. You can't just have mm. DNA. The DNA letters right. have to be ordered in a specific way to say, hey, cell, in this condition, do this. In this condition, do that. And without an instruction set, life is impossible. Life is information. Life is all about passing information from one generation to the next and responding to the information coming in from the environment, using information to do stuff. And oh. without that, there's no life. So this program is a nothing to overcome the big problems. But it's even worse than that. Oh, man. <laughs> I love when you're on a roll. <laughs> you're just thinking out loud now. <laughs> I am great. just thinking out loud. You know what a chicken and egg problem is, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What well, came first, the chicken or the egg? Ha, ha, ha. Okay. <laughs> so a chicken and egg problem is an infinite loop that can't be broken. In biology, there are many chicken and egg problems. In fact, there are three and four way chicken and egg problems. For example, the ATP synthase motor is a collection of proteins. It's the world's smallest rotary motor. You have untold gazillions of them in your cells. This is made of proteins that take hydrogen, let it flow through the protein, it spins, and it takes ADP and joins it with a P and makes ATP. And ATP, adenosine triphosphate, is, floats around the cell and is, it's basically a temporary energy storage mechanism. Where our long-term storage is fat, our short-term storage is sugar, 
and then we burn the sugars to make ATP, and ATP is used up right away, but it's sent around the cell to do all these different things. But ATP synthase is a collection of proteins. It requires ATP to make proteins. So what came first, ATP synthase or ATP? The protein right. or the product? Impossible. Not only is ATP incredibly rare, um, it's, in fact, it's, it's so rare, I, I would wager that you would never find an ATP molecule in nature apart from biology. It's such a reactive molecule, it's never going to exist on its own. Even ADP, adenosine diphosphate, is extremely reactive. It's never going to form on its own either. So you have a problem getting the adenosine. You have a problem with phosphates too, because phosphates, they react with any metal with a plus two or plus three charge, and it makes an insoluble salt. So if a phosphate bumps into an iron atom floating in the water, or manganese or magnesium, it makes something insoluble and it's lost to biology. Biology cannot use it anymore. So phosphate's really rare in the wild, and yet DNA, RNA, and ATP are all based on phosphate. So life used a strange molecule. And these, this is at the basis of all life, is these three things. And yet, it's not just a chicken and egg problem, it's at least a three-way chicken and egg problem. Because you need ATP to take a stretch of DNA and transcribe it into RNA. You need ATP to take that RNA and translate it into protein. The protein then is used to make or let's say that the protein might be like a, a DNA polymerase or, or something like that. You need proteins to manufacture the ATP synthase system. <laughs> so not only lot. is it a protein, you need other proteins to make it. But you can't do any of that without ATP. So which came first? The transcription translation machinery? ATP synthase? ATP? And on and on and on. And you can make so many different arguments about living things in that way. I mean, we are incredibly well-engineered, and we're engineered with improbable molecules using improbable chemical reactions, going back to the photosynthesis discussion we had. Honestly, I don't think the origin of life scenario has anything to say. They've gotten almost nowhere in 100 years. In fact, I think they're going the wrong way. What kind of boggles me is that as I'm listening to you explain these details, we're saying, how can natural processes, a little bit of chaos and disorder, maybe a good earthquake or an asteroid collision cause these things with a combination of accidents and coincidences? And what's kind of funny is, Rob, it, I'm thinking, if I'm thinking correctly, even human beings haven't gone into a laboratory and using these chemicals intelligently caused a situation where something came to life. You know, even, even with Dr. Frankenstein, you're taking something that had been animated and you're making it reanimated. But we're, we haven't figured out a formula, a dastardly plot. We haven't cooked up something where we can create a new life form simply by using the chemicals right? I mean, like we, we haven't invented a creature and as smart as humans are, you know? <laughs> we got nowhere. We, we can't even resuscitate a dead bacterium, let alone a dead person. Once cellular processes stop, chaos happens and all the delicately bound systems just fall apart and there's no way to restart them again. And if that's true, how did it start in the first place? So 
because they don't have a creator in the evolutionary model, because it's strict methodological naturalism, there's got to be a, a, a non-designer way of having things uh, work out. We need life to arise all by itself with no help. And they can't do it. It's too complicated. It's too opposite of reality. It's like there's nothing here in chemistry or in probability theory or in information theory or in physics or, I mean, all these vast areas of scientific knowledge, all of them argue against the spontaneous origin of life. And by spontaneous, I mean life from non-living chemicals. People, people argue, oh, it's not spontaneous. It takes millions of years. But still, there's a point at which there's a non-reproducing entity and a reproducing entity. That's the spontaneous part. Something that happens by itself with no outside help. There's nothing in science to suggest that this is possible. And yet, to say that in a scientific venue, you will be shouted down because mm. this is a sacred cow. This is absolutely 100%. It cannot fail. If it fails, evolution is not true. Now, what, what would replace it? Maybe aliens or maybe... Um, uh, God creates things, uh, you know, every billion years he, he adds some new life forms to the planet or something like that. And they sort of try to hold on to evolution, like, you know, maybe God made mammals and mammals evolved over time, or maybe God made animals, or maybe God made eukaryotes and evolution happens from there. But they have, would have to have God somewhere, like, you know, what, what uh, Cinderella's godmother always say, bippity boppity boo, I think. Put them together and what have you got? White waving his magic wand and the little sparkles come down and all of a sudden you have little bunny rabbits or you have little bacteria. Because you're not going to get random chemicals. Plus, they only have a couple billion years. That's not a long time. Okay. When you're talking it about like a lot to me, <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like a lot until you realize the mathematics of the problem. There are things that there are so improbable. You can talk in billions of years and still say, you know what? It's not going to happen. It's even worse than that. There's, um, there's a lot of enzymes. Jonathan Sarfati talks about this a lot. and It's really cool. I don't remember examples and I don't remember the numbers, but I will say that there are certain chemical reactions that are absolutely required for living things. They can happen in a test tube, but the half-life, the time it takes for half of the um, reactants to go to, to product is on the order of a billion years or more. And yet in life, it happens in a millionth of a second. So we're talking about reactions. Yeah, they can happen, but they wouldn't ever happen. And yet living things have enzymes that speed these things up by multiple orders of magnitude. I mean, literally billions of fold faster in the cell than they happen in the, chem in the test tube. And without those enzymes, you don't get life. So that's another chicken and egg problem. Without the enzymes, we have no living things. Where do the enzymes come from? I mean, everything here is screaming design. Life yeah. is, is shouting, I did not come about randomly. Life has to be kickstarted in a massive way. In fact, um, a, a lot of the creation evolution debate is sort of like a top-down argument. People are arguing over, you know, can things change? Well, of course things can change. Both sides say they change. The question is how much? Instead of doing that, we should do a bottom-up approach and ask the oh. question that says, if this fails, you're wrong. That was a, the nature of Evolution's Achilles Heels, that book and documentary you see my did um, that you actually did, right? Yeah. Yeah, you stepped yeah, in so. the middle of that project. 
Good job, man. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, the um, sorry, it was so long ago. It, it's um, a little blurry in my mind because that was so much hard work. It was three years of my life that went into that. But the point is, evolution's Achilles' heels was a bottom-up approach. It's like well, let's not argue over little things. Let's get down to nuts and bolts here. If this is not true, evolution is not true. And origin of life is one of those things. If there is no reasonable way to put together chemicals to make living things, then evolution is not reasonable. If there's nothing in there that, you know, nothing in probability suggests that this thing is actually going to happen by itself, then why would you believe in evolution? You might as well believe in miracles or fairy godmothers. So can you explain something to me as I was going through material about Charles Darwin? He left the door open to being an agnostic. And was he suggesting that he did or didn't believe in his theory? Or was he saying that they could reconcile and God used an evolutionary process? Um, I will tell you straight up that Charles Darwin was not an agnostic. He was an atheist. Okay. One of his friends invented the phrase agnostic. And he said it, and he, you know, he would have applied that to himself. But one of his sons was in charge of his autobiography, and he deliberately, this is part of the historical record now, he deliberately expunged the anti-Christian parts of Charles Darwin's life to make him sound less uh, difficult for the Christian culture in which he lived. Uh, We know he died unbelieving. Um, I can almost quote off the top of my head. um, I can't see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true, for then my father, brothers, and almost all of my best friends will be everlastingly punished and this is a damnable doctrine right that's verbatim practically what that's he said pretty much verbatim i've said that so many times in one of my talks so he called christianity damnable wow well first of all darwin you can't use that word you have no definition of it in an evolutionary sense second of all how dare you how dare you <laughs> sir and third it's clear he died without any faith so the the old um darwin recant on his deathbed that's just an urban myth there's actually a, okay. You just read that. You just read that, didn't you? Yeah. I wanted to hear your take on it too. The article I read was not written by you, so I wanted to hear your take on it too. Yeah, that was uh, R- uh, Russell Grigg from like nine years ago or something like that. But I just came uh-huh. across that on creation.com. It's like perfect because I was talking about that on my YouTube thing. And all of a sudden, here's an audio of this article. Boom. So I just stuck a, a footnote in there. Oh, good, good. Yeah, that was perfect timing. But point is, Charles Darwin died an atheist. There's no evidence at all that he ever changed his mind. And we have letters that he wrote up to almost the day he died, back and forth. That man wrote thousands of letters, and people have collected them in giant archives, and are all online now. No, he, he died unbelieving. All right, where, where was that going? What was the original question? Well, the question is, could he, was he trying to reconcile a God using evolution or not? You know, oh, okay. you, I think you answered the question. Well, sort of. He, in The Origin of Species, he mentions a creator, as in maybe the creator created some wiggling little thing. And he mentions um, that maybe this creator breathed into life, whether one form or several, I don't know, he says. But he's referencing Genesis chapter 1, where God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of the spirit of life, or Genesis chapter 2, actually. And he's talking about a creator. But this is on the last page of The Origin of Species. And I don't know if this is politically done or if he's i don't think he's seriously doubting or maybe he's just at this point in life where he's rejected almost everything about christianity but not quite as one last vestige i don't know 
But he later on writing to his friend, Joseph Hooker, one of his best friends, he doesn't have many friends. The man, we did Charles Darwin. So yeah, that's right. We did two episodes on Charles Darwin. Mm-hmm. His agoraphobia, yep. his his uh, reclusion, his throwing up for three days if he met someone on unawares and things like that. So he does have a friend named Joseph Hooker and he write back and forth a lot. And four years after the origin is um, published, he writes, I have long regretted that I truckled to public opinion and used pentateuchal terms of creation. So he's right. complaining to his friend that he allowed public opinion to sway him and he used pentateuchal terms, in other words, creator, in the origin of species. Well, they do kind of seem out of place. It, it totally seems out of place. But he never writes this in print in a book. He's only in his personal letters to his friend. And then, I think it's 1871, I think this is the same year The Descent of Man is published, I think. Uh, he writes to Hooker again, and this is where we get the warm little pond quote. In fact, I've got it on my screen here. I just pulled up my notes. It says, but if, and oh, what a big if, we could conceive of some warm little pond with all sorts of ammonia and phosphoric salts, light, heat, electricity present, that a protein was chemically formed, ready to undergo still more complex changes. Ha 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 ha. He's imagining the origin of life from prebiotic chemistry. So this question goes all the way back to the root of evolutionary theory. Right. Because that's if it's it not up. possible, then there's a creator. There's no, there's, no other, there's no other option here. Life comes up out by itself or it was created. There's no intermediate position. And my position is that life cannot come about by itself. Chemistry is too complicated. Life is too complicated. Life is too improbable. Life is balanced on the edge of a razor as far as its probability goes. It's never going to happen by itself unless you believe in miracles, which I do believe in a miracle. The creation of life was miraculous. In fact, Absolutely. the way God could have created life modularly based on mud and dirt. Hmm. He, could, he could have, even in a creation Genesis Bible sort of a, a scenario, he could, could, have, could have created life that arose spontaneously from mud and dust. He could have done that. He could have made it so that we're obviously like, you know, we're a golem walking around and our, our arms are made of clay and yet we're animated clay. He could easily have done something like that, but he didn't. He made life radically, based on an atomic level, the same thing dust and dirt are made out of. That's what we're made out of. On the atomic level only, on the molecular level, there's no comparison. Huh. That's cool. I never quite said it that way before. I like that. that's a good way to put it. I like that. I like that. You have to use that. It's sort of like, as God is above us spiritually, we are above dirt physically. We are in a completely different universe than the dirt is and just random matter and you know star, stars and burned out stars and brown dwarfs and whatever it might be out in, the, out in the universe. We are utterly improbable. And that utter improbability says that evolution from that standpoint is not true. We had to have been made. Cool. So I wanted to bring up sort of the opposite end of our life spectrum discussion. Okay. It seems that a lot of folks these days are interested in sustaining life forever. Oh, they want to yes. find a way to eradicate death. It yes, is a, I forgot that you something want to talk I've seen. About this. I've seen a lot of people who love it like they think it's on the it's on, we're on the cusp of figuring it out, cracking the secret code, you know. What is the formula it's going to take to let mankind live forever? That there's going to be something we can biologically engineer so that aside from disasters, an individual just 
is perpetually existent, doesn't, doesn't die of natural causes, diseases can be eradicated and go on and on. Uh, I want to know, like, what is the potential for extending human life? And if, and you think it could be extended forever? And if so, why? And if not, why not? <laughs> you remember our second law of thermodynamics discussion several episodes ago? Um, no, mm -hmm. it's, we will never live forever. It is not, <laughs> it, that would have to actually defy the known laws of physics. It's not going to happen. However, someone a couple years ago estimated that the first person who's going to live to 200 years old has already been born. Oh, nice. That is fascinating. We are learning <laughs> wow. so much about aging. We know what happens genetically. We know what happens physically. We know what happens in the brain, in the joints, the muscles. We're learning so much. And everyone's like, okay, we can fix this. If, if one person can live to 120 years old, why can't everyone live to 120 years old? Oh, because they have those DNA parts that make them die at 50, even though this other person has those same things, but they have these other other parts that just let them plow through what killed their neighbor at 50, and now they're 100 years old now. So genetically, we're figuring this out. We can take a mouse and literally double its lifespan by changing a couple letters in his genome. It's funny as it makes them uh, short and fat. <laughs> <laughs> but they live twice as long. We can also radically, in fact, this has been done with every species tested, except humans. It's a little more complicated, but all the people in this field are doing this using something called caloric restriction. Give uh -huh. the animal as much nutrients as it needs, but about half the amount of food that it wants. And it will live a lot longer than if he can eat whatever he wants. So being <laughs> calorically starved increases your lifespan being hungry is good for you well that Whoa. doesn't sound like fun no it doesn't well <laughs> you're not starving you have a meal or two a day you're hungry but you're not like oh, i'm gonna die now today um no you're you're you um you tend to be thin and you tend to have a lot of energy and you live a long productive healthy life that's a good point as far as all the animals tested Humans are just a lot more complicated and you're not allowed to do experiments on humans. But I've heard of multiple people in this field, multiple professors who are studying this and they're doing it to themselves. So lifespans controlled by the environment and by genetics. And we now know what factors affect us that way. Lifespans also uh, controlled by oh, genetics again, but um, the aging of the brain. We're learning how the brain ages. Say, oh, wait a minute. You know, this genetic factor influences that. And this me medical or medicinal or nutritional factor influences that. And maybe if we give a person who's 80 this chemical, it'll help dissolve the plaques that's building up. And then now they're going to live to be, you know, 200 or 110 instead of dying at 80. We're right there, man. Right wow. on the cusp of radically increasing human lifespan. Wow. But <laughs> if you want to live to 200... How many bouts of cancer will you have to survive? Oh, wow. If you want to live to 700, 800, you know, how many times will your knees have to be replaced? And your hips? <laughs> or what do you do when you have to replace a vertebra? And what happens when your eyes start getting weak? Or uh, it'd be awful. Or, or if your brain starts slowing down. I mean, now, you know, Alzheimer's kills people within a couple years to a decade today. What if it takes a hundred years to kill you later? That would stink. I wouldn't want to decline for a hundred years. I want to, I want to go off on a swan dive. That's my goal in life to maintain, 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 and then boom, be dead. I don't want to go. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> in fact, a lot of people, you know people like this, they hit 50-ish years old, they start packing on some pounds, they stop moving, and their life just kind of slowly decays to the point where when they're dying, you know, they've had a decade or more of diabetes and not being able to walk and, you know, all those sorts of problems. We know how to avoid those things. And those things are the greatest risk of death for people over the age of 50 is diet and exercise. Now, marathoners don't necessarily live longer. That's an interesting little bit of knowledge. So, you know, your extreme athletes don't necessarily have the best hearts, mm. but people who get up off their butt and do things every day, they live longer. It's good for That's you. so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and the strangest thing also though, is people who live longer tend to not be really skinny. So that contradicts the caloric restriction idea. And yet we know it works in mice and rabbits and you know, whatever else we tested. People are just odd, but we're going to figure that out too. And we are going to, I mean, we are going to change everything. I mean, in the future, when you need a heart transplant, your doctor is going to 3D print a heart Whoa. or take Whoa. stem cells from your body put it on a scaffold, a protein scaffold, and have it grow a heart, including nerves and blood vessels. Oh, wow. You need a knee replacement? Okay, come back uh, three weeks. We'll have your knee grown for you. No more titanium knees. They will have a knee grown with your cells, your bone, your blood type, your everything. You know, they'll have the, you, you need, if, just if you need, you get a bad knee, you need new cartilage, they'll just grow new cartilage for you. New liver? No problem. We'll grow your liver. One thing that's fascinating about this is the idea that it can be done using your DNA, using flesh, using tissues, using and it can be marrows. done today. Yeah, this Unlike is not science. What we were fiction. saying about creating stuff from non-life, you know, creating things from the chemicals, you can't do it. You're like you can three print a heart, you just can't do it without the DNA and without the instructions for how the DNA is supposed to be. It's even more than that. They're 3D printing your cells. That, exactly. They grow <laughs> your cells awesome. and culture and use that to 3D print. Now, maybe they're not wow. quite there yet, but they're working on it. I mean, it's getting closer and closer mm -hmm. and closer. Wow. Science fiction is becoming more reality all the time. Yep. I and then the it. question is, who wants to live forever? Oh, there's a, there's a hymn. Um, I, every once in a while, I pick up a hymn book and I'll pace my living room singing to myself. But I love the 1700s hymns, Isaac Watts and, and, and those types of hymns and are kind of slow yeah. and sonorous and one of them is who who would wish to live forever apart from your god i don't want to live forever i mean even if i could live for 500 years this world is still gonna stink and i don't right. want to live for 500 years under sin and i don't want to see you it's know true. how many wars can i see in 500 years how many deaths of near of good friends will I, will happen just accidents you know car accidents and and things like that and let alone cancer and, and old age i mean the travail and the misery there's you know to live forever in a utopia great but to live forever on this earth no thanks i got a better place waiting for me on that note i remember from a lot of the uh you know sci-fi elements of the comic book superhero superman that he's supposed to be you know the superman in an evolutionary sense by a lot of the yeah. writers that's how they interpret him and there's this idea that he he doesn't live forever but he lives for a long time and it's been depicted 
in various versions of their stories. And like you're saying, who wants to live forever to go through so many wars and lose so many loved ones? And they depict yeah. Superman outliving his wife, his descendants. Yeah, Lois Lane. I mean, what are you going to do when you're still young and virile and your wife just dies of old age? You know, sort of like the Highlander situation. You know, that's just stinky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and and that that would become something else to figure out. <laughs> wow. Oh, well, before that we is go, an though. Excellent place to wrap up. Bef- no, it's not. Yeah. There's something we forgot oh. last time oh. and almost forgot this time. I want to point the listeners to a book. Ah, yes. It's a book that CMI has just started carrying, and it is excellent. It's called The Stairway to Life, an Origin of Life Reality Check. It's easy to get. Just go to creation.com and type in Stairway or Stairway to Life, or look in the show notes for this episode. I've already put the link in the show notes. Um, But this is one of the best things I've ever read about the origin of life. One of the reasons why we were talking about last week is because i've been reading this book and, and then this other paper comes up so i like origin of life's been on my mind a lot lately but just to have it very simply spelled out and with a very simple graphical illustration of the problem it's called the stairway and each chapter is dealing with another problem so they go from the formation and concentration of the building blocks i'll skip that one because uses a big word um, a solution to the water paradox which we talked about today the linking of the building blocks, which we talked about today, reproduction of biopolymers, how to regulate genes, how to repair biopolymers. It goes up and up and up and up and up, and it gets more and more complicated and worse and worse and worse for the origin life scenario. And it's on a very accessible level. I mean, this is very easily understandable by anyone who's in high school or has completed high school, probably middle school. I, I don't know. One of my kids read this. They're probably bored stiff because they don't like science like that, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure they can understand most of it. It's an excellent book, The Stairway to Life. Highly recommended. Excellent. I'll have to get a copy. wonder if there will be an, uh, would you think that it would be readable for an audiobook? I'm tempted to look into that. Oh, yes, you should. Well, let's talk about that after we get off the air because, um, yeah. It's not, it's not a what CMI product, though. That's so it's, you'd have to do. But you know what? Let's talk about it because I, I got an idea. Cool. Well, thank you, everyone, who's joined us on this quest. If you found this episode interesting in any way, consider sharing it with your family and friends. And if you want to dig deeper into any of the things that Rob highlighted in the discussion about Origin of Life, you can find links to that stuff that we discussed in this episode in the show notes on our website. So it occurred to me that usually I mention the name of our website and it doesn't necessarily sound like a web address because we're used to using .com, maybe .org, maybe .net, .co, .io. But you know, there's actually a lot of web address extensions now. So the one for our website is .fm. It's just really easy because, you know, this is a podcast. It's kind of like radio, you know? So it's .fm. Makes a lot of sense, yeah. FM, for a podcast. Okay. Forward slash Equinox slash 31. And the show notes are also with this episode if you subscribe to the show in an app on your phone. You should also check out biblicalgenetics.com, which is Rob's other project, which we brought up earlier. Look at that new video about the origin of life. Biblical Genetics is also available on Facebook and YouTube where you can watch the video and join discussions in the comments. 
And if you want to find me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter, or you could also take a listen to my other podcasts, the article podcast and the technology podcast, which is available at nightowl.fm slash hi-fi. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You have been listening to Equinox. I'm so tempted to go into my full on. You have been listening to Equinox. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe someday we should.